Father, we thank you so much that no matter what we have brought into this room, no matter what joys, no matter what struggles, no matter what sufferings or sorrows, that you know us, that you see us, that you hear us, and you are desirous to speak to us as your word is opened. Lord, I do pray that you would ready our hearts to hear and respond, that your word, your timeless, eternal gospel would reign supreme and bring us fullness of joy as we consider not just the word of God, but the God of the word who is revealed in it. And so I pray that during this time you'd fill me with your spirit, that I would um, be kept to only say what would make most of Jesus, that your word would be our ultimate rule together in the church, your spirit our ultimate teacher, your glory our top concern, and your son our chief joy. And Lord, we ask all this to be done to make much of your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so what, what is the most precious beautiful piece of art you've ever seen? What's the most beautiful picture you've ever seen? For some of us, you think maybe like Starry Night, Van Gogh, or Picasso, or Mona Lisa, or even just a picture of Bald Knob Cross as the sun rises over it. My wife and I, we own one piece of art. We are not classy or connoisseurs of anything. We own one piece of art, and that was given to us. But it is a piece of significance to us, and here's why. It's a three-foot-by-two-foot oil painting that a friend of Jen's made and gave to us for a wedding gift, and it combines two of the most significant scenes in our lives. On the bottom half of the picture, you see where we had our first date, and she captured it perfectly. And then the top half of the picture is a scene where we got engaged. And so this unlikely conglomeration of first date and engagement, every time we look at it, it captures our hearts. Scenes of significance to no one else in this room except for us, but it moves us. It compels us to live differently in light of seeing it. And so we put it up on the wall with nothing next to it, much to our shame. (laughs) Nonetheless, pictures can move us. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33, Paul is painting for you and I the most wondrous beautiful picture of marriage that the world has ever known. And he's not painting the picture of any earthly marriage. He's painting the picture of Christ to the church, the marriage that every marriage is representative of. And it's this picture that he puts before us, serving like divine brushstrokes on the canvas of eternity, meant to penetrate our hearts and then invite us to live differently in light of it. And yet, as I I know, as I've just spoken of marriage as this beautiful picture and and this wonderful thing that God has created, the first thing that you might be feeling at at this moment is pain. You've been married, and it didn't work. Or you are married, and it's really hard. Maybe you're feeling apathy. Maybe you're a teenager, and you're like, well, that's for 10 years from now. What is this going to say to me today? Maybe you're widowed and and you you so long and miss the one that you shared so much of your life with. See, the good news for you, you and I today is that all of God's word is good for all of God's people at all of all of the time. (laughs) 
all of God's word is good for all of God's people all of the time. And the point of this passage, the point of our time together is not for us to look in the mirror, but instead to look to the altar. Marriage is not about us. It is about God. And so I invite you to listen this morning with God-centered ears instead of me-centered reflection. I invite you to hear the wondrous good news of the perfect groom, Jesus Christ, choosing, redeeming, and beautifying the bride, his church, us who are in Christ by faith. And he promises an eternal, unbreakable, and perfect marriage for all time. This is the God who we listen to. And this is the marriage that we're going to unpack over the next three weeks. And this morning, we answered the first part of it. What is biblical marriage? What is it? What is biblical marriage? The Apostle Paul is going to answer this for us with focus on the last three verses. He's going to show us that biblical marriage is a covenantal union of one man and one wife for all of life in complementary roles seeking to glorify God. A biblical marriage is one man and one wife for all of life in complementary roles seeking to glorify God in all of life. And in these three short verses, he's going to tell us what is the mission of marriage and what are the marks of marriage. The mission of marriage and the marks of marriage. First, the mission of marriage in verse 32 is to glorify God by imaging Christ in the church. Open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, as I read aloud for us. Paul, referencing marriage at the end of the passage we just heard, he says, This mystery, the mystery of Christ in the church, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Mysterious. Not beautiful, the first word that Paul uses. is an interesting choice of words. Mysterious. And, and we hear mysterious, we think like Sherlock Holmes, TV drama, like whodunit. But Paul isn't thinking Sherlock Holmes as much as he's thinking, I can't believe what I just saw. <laughs> like capturing me. And some things in this life are just too mysterious to explain. Exhibit A, my marriage to my wonderful wife. <laughs> and here's why. Jen and I, we met through a chance encounter as volunteers at a summer camp when we were teenagers. And then, much to the odds of likely marriage, we dated on opposite sides of the country long distance for years at a time. And if you've met my wife and talked to her for like five seconds, you know I married up. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, One-upped me would, to be, would be the, the most generous thing to say. In looks smarts, and especially patience. It is a flat-out mystery that Jen said yes when I proposed and asked her to be my bride. But we're going with it. (laughs) So that's where we are. It, It is a mystery. And yet, as many husbands who have similarly married up will attest that marriage can be a mystery, the greater mystery that Paul is pointing us to is more than any husband marrying up. It is the mystery of Christ in the church, a perfect groom uniting himself to an often wayward and rebellious wife. Let's remember why this mystery is profound. He puts profound in here, mega mystery in the original, as if he could put a bigger capital M on the word mystery. See, the groom is God himself, eternal, holy, perfect. Isaiah 6, 3, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The same God in Genesis 1 and 2 who created everything and made it and called it good and made us in his image to know, love, and worship him like a perfect marriage, a bride with a husband free of sin, sorrow, suffering. And that's in the first two chapters. And then by Genesis 3, the mystery becomes a tragedy. And here's why. The bride is introduced. And instead of faithfully loving her groom as called and created to, the bride falls. The bride succumbs to other lovers, other temptations. Adam and Eve, our first representative humanity, they submit to the snake instead of the creator. Eve usurps power. Adam abdicates leadership. And together they eat the fruit and they fall into sin. They fall away from life in love with God. And this is the pattern that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. Remember Israel? God's bride in the Old Testament? Often going after false nations, false gods, golden calves, other foreign powers. The New Testament church, no different. Paul tells us in Romans 1, we have all exchanged the glory of God for the glory of self. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God in our own ways. In your, your heart, my heart, we've said, no thanks, God. Your love has not satisfied me. I will look for it somewhere else, even in lesser things, created things, gifts, instead of the God who made it all. And so the wages of our sin is death. What we deserve is the eternal divorce for our sin. And yet this mystery becomes great good news when we look to the perfect groom. See, the the mystery of the gospel says that the perfect groom so loved his wayward wife that he was willing to pursue her, to leave eternal comfort, to come and choose, redeem, and beautify her. That is at the heart of the gospel, guys. This picture of marriage in Ephesians 5 reminds us of the entire gospel story. God choosing, redeeming, and beautifying a bride for his perfect son, Jesus. And this is what great love... If that's the picture of ultimate marriage, listen to the picture of the love that won that marriage. 1 John chapter 4. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we rebelled, He ran too. When we ran away, He turned us towards Himself. But God showed His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the mega mystery. That is the most profound mystery of all eternity if God choosing, redeeming, and beautifying a bride for himself. And guess what? The story is not over. (laughs) See, right now the church is in the midst of like the longest engagement ever. I, I don't know if you remember your engagement. Short, long, I'd advise shorter than longer for anyone in the room who's pursuing a godly marriage. Our, mar- our engagement was a little lengthier. And during that time, we were occupied with preparing a wedding. Anyone who's tried to prepare a wedding on a budget in a timely way knows it ain't easy. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. You got the photographer, you got the flowers, you got the caterers, which that's the most fun part, caterer. And you got the suits, the dresses, invitations. So much work goes into it, but one moment makes it all worth it that moment when you're standing at the aisle. See, I remember my moment, so to say, 
in part because my anniversary is tomorrow, so I better not forget it. But I remember this moment that made all the work worth it. June 24th, 2012, there I am, 25, and as you can imagine, looking a generous 18. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Gray suit, purple tie, but it was the most beautiful moment. I was standing there awaiting the long-anticipated arrival of my bride, and then the music paused. And the crowd stood up, they turned, all the focus went to where it should have been on the more patient, beautiful, smart woman that was standing at the end of that aisle, Jen, in this gorgeous white gown, perfect flowery crown, flanked by her dad, one of them smiling as big as I was, wasn't him. (laughs) And And that moment made all the work worth it. We locked eyes and we knew the rest of our lives together was beginning on June 24th. No longer two separate people, now one united flesh in covenantal union. The beginning of the rest of our lives. That moment was worth it. Guys, the greater moment is yet to come. If you are in Christ Jesus, that wedding will come. And I know it's coming because God is working to prepare it now as the gospel invitation is sent out, and God has promised for that day to come. As great as your wedding day was, can you imagine the mysterious wonder of the bride being united to her perfect groom for all eternity? Well, you don't have to imagine as much as listen. Revelation 19, verse 6 to 7. Listen to the perfect wedding. Revelation 19, verse 6 to 7 on the screen behind me. As I find my place. Then I heard, this is John speaking about the vision of that wedding, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, the best wedding band ever, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. The most royal of weddings. The wedding that CNN couldn't even top. (laughs) The day when Christ and the church are united. The, The day when the entire world stops and turns and they see the beautified bride presented to the perfect groom. And it's this day that makes our marriages so mysterious, the whole concept of marriage so mysterious, because it points to the mega mystery, the profound mystery of Christ and the church. And it's this consummation that gives hope and anticipation in the midst of our lives now. See, we look forward to this perfect marriage where all who are in Christ will be united to him. But in this day and time, as we wait, we got hard marriages. (laughs) Many of us have been suffering in marriages that are marked by abuse or betrayal. We've walked through divorce. We've walked through the struggles of infertility or just uh, adultery. Not just, uh, including adultery. These are very real struggles that are experienced in light of the brokenness and the sin of Genesis 3. And so if this is you today, what I invite you to do is not to pretend that stuff's not hard, because it is. 
but to instead we set our hope on that day when Christ and the church are united and all who are in Christ are with him forever, free of sin, sorrow, suffering. One bride, one groom for all of life, glorifying God together. And if you're not yet in Christ, I don't want you to leave here today without hearing the invitation to this wedding. See, this invitation to the wedding, the wedding doors are only open to those who RSVP. You know the little RSVP cards that you're so tempted to throw away and be like, hey, why didn't they just put the RSVP online so I could click a link and tell them I'm coming? Well, the gospel good news goes out with an RSVP. You got to respond if you want to walk in those doors. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 25. He uses a parable of the bridegroom showing up and some of the servants not being ready to receive him. They got distracted with other things. They thought other things besides just knowing and loving him were more important. Listen to the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 10 to 13. While they, the servants I was referencing, were going to buy the supplies, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in. They were waiting, watching for him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. See, agreement generally with Jesus is different from faith personally. Agreement generally with Jesus, as him as a teacher, this perfect wedding concept, sounds great, is different from faith personally. The doors are open, but they're open to those who have said, Jesus has lived the life that I failed to. I was the adulterous wife in that mega mystery story. And yet Jesus came to live the life I failed to. And then he went to the cross and took the punishment that I deserve to bear for all eternity. I deserve the eternal divorce, but he came to sacrifice his life so I could have eternal victory and and life with God. And he rose from the dead to prove that it's true. And now he demands a response. Have you responded by faith in Christ to the one who forgave you of your sin personally? Don't settle for agreement generally. Respond with faith personally and look forward to that wedding day. And as we look forward, this mega mystery has to change the mission in our marriages, right? It's got to. If this is true, and I believe it is, it changes our marriages. And here's what I mean. Marriage exists for God. God does not exist for marriage. Marriage exists for God and his glory. God does not exist for marriage. That practically means your marriage is first and foremost a pursuit of glorifying God with your spouse. It is not a pursuit of your comfort. It is not a pursuit of the greatest vacation or retirement plan or the most beautiful and wonderful grandchildren, although those are good gifts. Your marriage is about the glory of God. And if we are going to have a marriage, if you and and your spouse are going to have a marriage that images Christ in the church, well, your marriage needs worship, it needs grace, and it needs wisdom. 
First, your marriage needs worship, and here's what I mean by by that. Christian marriage is not Christian unless Jesus is at the center of it. Christian marriage is not Christian just by title, but it's only when both people in the marriage are bowing the knee, confessing the tongue, and pursuing fullness of joy in Jesus that it's actually a Jesus-centered marriage. See, Paul speaks to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to singles and marrieds, and he says, I give you this counsel in marriage so as to secure for you undivided devotion to the Lord. Whether you're single, whether you're married, undivided devotion to the Lord is the chief call and the chief goal is to make disciples of Jesus if you are married or if you are single. So practically speaking, if you're married, how can you help your spouse Pursue fullness of joy in Jesus first, even before marriage or anything else. How can you help your spouse pursue fullness of joy in Jesus above everything? Because only once they so love and receive his love will they have any hopes of loving you well, and vice versa. (laughs) And then at the same time, how can you and your spouse reprioritize your marriage to pursue the same mission that you have individually? What's our mission as a church and your mission individually? Well, Matthew 28 says it's to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. And if you're married, by his grace, he's given you a helper that every day of your life, someone else who gets to help you make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. And this might sound like rocket science. What am I going to do about this? But it might start with a simple conversation that goes something like this. At the dinner table tonight. Or you go out to Golden Corral for lunch. Hey, honey, can we pray about our marriage and and ask God what it might look like for us together to make disciples of Jesus with all that he's given us? Hey, honey, I, I really love those times when we get together and we pray and we read God's word or we participate in Sunday worship and Wednesday evening classes. Can we prioritize those times? Or You know, I've seen that new family at church. I don't know their name. Do you know their name? Can we have them over for dinner this week? I'd love to get to know them. Make them feel welcome at church. And I'd love to go on vacation with you. I always love traveling. And I know our church, we have like missionaries all over the world. What if we used our vacation time to go visit with those missionaries and maybe encourage them where they are? We could still jump in the pool and have a nice breakfast. But we could also encourage the missionaries there. Your marriage needs worship. And for this to happen, your marriage needs grace. Remember, this all starts in verse 21 out of reverence for Christ. Two people who know that they are sinners saved by grace, then stewarding grace to one another. Forgiveness is like the glue that holds our marriages together in the the warp and wolf of daily difficulty, right? So think about your marriage. Does it look more like a boxing ring where two people are just like duking it out for power, trying to come out on top, unwilling to forgive and extend grace? Or is it more like the beautiful Broadway stage where the the story is so enlivening and, and enrapturing because you see mysteriously two people who know they are sinners but saved by grace then radically forgiving one another. And stewarding grace, even when it's 99% the other person's fault. Your marriage needs grace. And finally, your marriage needs wisdom. Ephesians 5 is not an appendix for just married people. 
Ephesians 5 does not come with an asterisk. It comes smack dab in the middle of chapters 4 to 6, where it's, Paul is telling the entire church, single, married, divorced, widowed, dating, anything in between. I want you to live as imitators of God, to live the life worthy of all that God has done for us. And so it reminds us that the church helps individual marriages flourish towards this God-glorifying goal. If you're single or you're dating, that means practically, would you ask for counsel from godly Christian married couples? Have them speak into your considerations of who you're going to marry. If you are married and you're struggling in your marriage, be honest about it. it and don't, don't think twice about doing so. No one in this room has a perfect marriage, myself included. There's only one perfect marriage, Christ in the church. None of us have it. <laughs> until Revelation 19. And so you can ask for help. You can, on your Connect card, if you'd like marriage counseling, regardless if you've been married five minutes or 50 years, put your name on that Connect card. I'd love to talk with you about speaking into your marriage. And if you're older and you've been walking with your spouse for 50 years, do you know any young couples in the church who might benefit from a shared dinner and conversation about marriage? Would you take the initiative, maybe the uncomfortable initiative, getting to know them, inviting them into your home? We have an age-diverse church, praise God. We have opportunity to speak into, counsel one another. Your marriage needs worship, it needs grace, it needs wisdom, and it's all out of reverence for Christ. And so as we conclude with the two marks of biblical marriage, I want to remind you that all of this is meant to be worshipped to Jesus. None of us has a perfect marriage. And so we look to him first for fullness of love, and then we seek to live in light of what he's given us. So one of the marks of biblical marriage is covenantal union. Covenantal union. Verse 31. Verse 31. Turn with me to Ephesians 5, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. These words are not original of Paul. Paul is citing Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, word for word. He wants us to know that marriage is not a human invention, it's a divine revelation. Marriage is not a human invention for good or for bad, it is a divine revelation for human flourishing. And we know it's a divine invention because Genesis 2 unpacks it, and then we get to Genesis 2.24, where God says a covenantal union, much deeper than friendship, much more legally binding than a piece of paper, but does include that for us today. But it's a lifelong union of one man and one wife becoming one flesh. Listen again to Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A covenantal union is a sacrifice of personal freedom for the pursuit of mutual joy. A sacrifice of personal freedom. The husband in this picture leaving, abandoning everything about his former way of life. Why? To hold fast 
to cleave, to be glued together like perfectly fitting joints on a house, hold fast to his wife, and to have a one flesh union, abandon old ways of life, old love for self above anything else, and hold fast to his wife like shoelaces that are knit together and tied up on a, on a shoe. The husband and wife, all of theirs is yours. All of yours is theirs. One flesh union. No qualifications excluded from that. This is the wondrous walls of safety, the sanctuary of trust amidst the jungle of selfishness that would otherwise mark your marriage and my marriage. So as you guys probably know, i got to stop repping it so hard, but I'm from Philadelphia. And anyone with young children in Philadelphia would prefer to take their kids to a playground with walls. And here's why. Playgrounds in the city have trucks, buses, trains, and sometimes not the most stable of people walking around outside of it. And so I take my son to a playground with walls so that he can, A, focus on the joy in that playground itself, but B, be protected from the temptations and the dangers that would come from outside that playground. I want to maximize his joy, so I put up the walls that are for his good and his enjoyment. In a much greater way, the vows that you make at marriage, entering into that covenant... Those are more than declarations of present love. That doesn't sustain a marriage. You need more than a declaration of present love. You need a promise of future love, of safe, wall-surrounding love that no matter what comes out of that person, filthy words, things they regret saying, doing, no matter what comes along outside of those walls, even the shiniest of trucks, if you know what I mean, any temptation from outside marriage, no matter what, I am committed to Jen. Jen is committed to me. Covenantal vows provide that safe space for two people who have sacrificed their own personal freedom to then find liberating joy in what God has defined and designed to be good. One man, one wife, for all of life. And Adam and Eve, they experienced the goodness of this. Genesis 2.25. Listen to the deep joy and intimacy that comes when you sacrifice to enter into a covenant. And the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. They were fully known and truly loved. Fully known, flaws and all, and truly loved. That's the desire of each and every one of our hearts, isn't it? In marriage, for the other person to know me deeply, even the bad parts of me, and to say, no matter what, I still love you. Not because you're perfect, but because I have received perfect love in God that allows me to love you. Fully known and truly loved is only possible when you enter a covenantal union based on the covenantal love of God for his people. So remember, in Jesus' life, we hear this pattern, leaving, weaving, cleaving, just like he's done with his bride, the church. What did Jesus do? He left eternal comfort. He left eternal comfort 
to move towards his often rebellious and wayward wife. And what did he do? He held fast to her in the midst of her running, her fleeing, her sin, her sorrow, her suffering. He didn't turn the blind eye. He held fast to her. Why? To weave us, the church, into his flesh, one flesh. He takes our sin. We receive his righteousness. He goes to the cross so that all who have faith in him are united to him, one body. Union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of any marriage where union of husband and wife point to the greater mysterious union of Christ in the church. That is the great joy. That is the great hope that we have. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion, the juice that marks the covenants of his blood, securing our ongoing hope with him. So practically, if you're married, how does this covenantal union that you've vowed to walk in faithful, faithfulness to your spouse in, how does it right now, today, turn your attention into the playground and away from exterior temptation? If you're tempted towards lust, towards any sorts of things outside the playground, how does this covenantal union, the walls of knowing that God has created this marriage for your good and enjoyment and flourishing, How does it turn your attention to God and your spouse first? And then second, if you're not yet married and you're considering marriage in the future, how does this sort of commitment help you determine and assess who you might marry? See, if you are are considering marriage and you're looking into someone who's not faithfully committed to Jesus first, well, don't expect them to be faithfully committed to Jesus after you get married. It doesn't usually happen like that. Missionary dating is not the best advice per scriptural counsel. And if you find yourself in a place where you're in a marriage and you long for it to be healed and restored, remember that God's covenant with his people is unbreakable. He will never leave or forsake you, no matter how good or hard your marriage today is. And so we can be faithful and patient on that Revelation 19 day and be faithful to Jesus in the meantime. We are almost out of time, but I want to get to verse 33 before we leave. So the second mark of biblical marriage is complementary roles. And I want to qualify this. We're going to spend next week talking about godly wives. And then the following week about godly husbands. So today we only have time to briefly touch on this. But the second mark of biblical marriage, in addition to covenantal union, is complementary roles. Verse 33. However, let each one of you, husbands... Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Complementary roles, briefly defined as this. Husband and wife, equal in worth, creating God's image, but unique in role in the church and home. Husband and wife, equal in worth, created in God's image, but unique in role in the church and the home. And these roles of headship and submission are meant to display, reflect the unity amidst plurality in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in worth, yet unique in role. The mysterious display of Christ in the church via human marriage, the mysterious display of the Trinity now seen in headship and submission as husbands are called to love their wives, 
Wives are called to respect their husbands. Husbands, let each of you love his wife as himself. Pretty sobering when you think about how much time husbands, myself included, will spend loving ourselves. (laughs) Think about your use of time this past week, husbands. How much of it was time blocked for ESPN? Video games? Grilling? Fishing? I hear some fill-in-the-blanks from the back row. There are many suggestions to continue on. Husbands, love your wives as yourself. You're one flesh with your wife. Love her like you would love yourself. Think about what her ESPN, so to say, is, or her fishing trip, or her video games, and say, I want to use less of my time for me and more of my time for wife time, wife love. Start by asking, honey, how could I help you feel loved? Not what do I think would make you feel loved, but what would you actually receive as loving? And then put that on the calendar in place of some of the other me love times. And wives, don't worry guys, we have two more weeks to get into this nitty gritty stuff. Wives, the next, let the wife, it doesn't say some wives and some husbands, remember this is for all of us. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ladies, let's be honest. You probably wish a different word than respect was in there, right? Sometimes love would be easier than respect. And I know this because ain't a woman in this room that's married to Jesus, including and especially Jen. (laughs) Respect does not always come naturally in a marriage. And it's because we are sinners saved by grace, being changed by grace. We are not fully glorified yet. We are in the process of being sanctified. And so Paul would not commend wives to respect things that are not godly or God-glorifying in their husbands, but he does commend them to respect them, to encourage the God-glorifying attributes, demonstrations of his love overpouring through their activities. So practically, wives... What might it look like to show demonstrable respect to and for your husbands this week? What might it look like to use your words, your thoughts, your actions to respect your husbands? Externally, when you're talking with your friends, no more gossip or slander. You might be married to a bonehead, my wife is, but you don't need to rub it into her friends. When you say these things, it just furthers disrespect when you actually are with your husband. Speak well of them to others, and lo and behold, you might feel more highly towards them. Internally, wives, how might you show respect to your husband by just saying, thank you, honey, for, you know, taking care of the kids that evening. Thanks for doing the dishes. Thanks for serving me by fixing that thing around the house. I don't know what that thing would be because I can't fix anything, so I do the first two. But thank you, honey, for serving me, for, for working tirelessly to support our family. You can foster respect. And thank you, honey, for praying for me. Thank you for opening the word with our family, for helping our children to hear about Jesus. That's so important to us as a family. Thank you for doing that. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And as if that's easy, we remember it's impossible, impossible, without the spirit and reverence for Christ. See, this big old passage that we're unpacking in three weeks, 18 to 33, began with be spirit-filled, right? Verse 18, we talked about this last week. Be filled with the spirit. You're filled with the fleshly desires. You're not going to respect your husband or love your wife. You're going to love yourself and disrespect your husband. 
You need to be filled with the Spirit. And if you want to love each other together and glorify God as you image Christ in the church, well, you've got to have reverence for Christ. Verse 21. Unless both of you find most joy in Jesus, you won't live for the glory of Jesus together. And so that's where we conclude this morning. Biblical marriage is a covenantal union of one man, one wife, for all of life, in complementary roles, seeking to glorify God. And it's only possible as you love Jesus and are filled with the Spirit. So let's turn our attention now to worship God. We're going to sing glorious songs to the one who has chosen, redeemed, and is beautifying his bride to be the church. And then we're going to take communion. If you are in Christ, it's a preview of that coming heavenly banquet, the bread of life put on buffet serving size. And if you would want to pray for and with others in the church, I so encourage that. There are going to be prayer prompts on the screen behind me during this time um, before and after the lyrics are up. I invite you to, if you're sitting with your spouse, consider those prayer prompts. I apologize. Um, but we can see them all. Uh, consider the prayer prompts and pray with your spouse. Talk with them about these. Talk with them when you go out to lunch about this. And if you're sitting with someone who's single, divorced, widowed, get together and pray with them. Ask them how you could be praying for them in light of this passage. So let's turn receive the bread and the juice which remind us of the covenant God has made with us in Christ and then let's sing to him and speak with him in prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that even though we have this proclivity towards spiritual adultery, you have sent your perfect son to the the ultimate groom to rescue, redeem, and beautify the bride to be the church. We thank you that in spite of what we deserve and not because of what we've earned, but in your sheer grace, mysterious, mega mystery-sized grace, you've set your love on your people and are drawing the elect to you and giving increasing joy to your saints. Please do that during this time. Lead those who have yet to RSVP to Jesus personally to do so today and remind each and every one of us in our our good, our hard, our, our short, our long marriages, that they're all pictures of your glorious marriage of Christ in the church. We ask you to accomplish this for your glory, and it's by your Son's name we ask. Amen.